our prayer uh, for you and ongoing prayer for you really is that, that you experience that joy and you experience the peace that we're talking about. You know, we, we, last week we're talking about that a good bit as we were in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and where it talks about the names uh, of Jesus and the coming Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and it ends with Prince of Peace. And we made the point last Sunday that the only way to really experience peace is through Christ. And the same thing is true when it comes to experiencing joy. And I agree with what Aaron said earlier. That isn't a given any time of year, but especially not now. And I know that this is a season that can bring a lot of joy, but it can bring a lot of stress as well. And the thought of you know, all that needs to be done, maybe in some cases just you know wanting to get that Christmas shopping list done, or maybe even started. The thought of that is very stressful. You know, the thought of parties that you need to go to, and kids' activities at school, and choir concerts, and work events, and that's not even mentioning hosting people for Christmas Day, or whatever your family traditions are, or even just being with extended family. Sometimes there's a lot of stress that comes this time of year, and uh, the way for us to, to find that peace and to find the joy that we're talking about really is through Christ. And we've been in the book of Isaiah going through a study of Old Testament prophecy that was pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah that was fulfilled in Jesus. And we're going to continue that on today, but let me just real quickly review where we've been. We've been talking about Ahaz, the king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom at this time. He was terrified because the king of Israel and the king of Syria were going to attack him. And God sent Isaiah to say, don't worry about it, I got you. But he didn't listen. Ahaz was still terrified. And his solution, rather than turning to God, was to turn to the Assyrians for deliverance. And that's what he did. Chapter 10 of Isaiah is all about the Assyrians coming and bringing God's judgment on, starting with the, the northern kingdom, but then... Beyond that, uh, to a certain degree, to the southern kingdom as well. But the problem was that the king of Assyria didn't understand that he was simply a tool in God's hands. In fact, he's described as God said he would use the Assyria as the rod of his anger. But Isaiah 10.13 records the way the king of Assyria saw it. He said, by the strength of my own hand I have done it, and by my wisdom... For I have understanding. He thought it was all about him. And listen to the way God responds to this. A couple verses later, Isaiah 10, 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God said, look, you're nothing more than a tool. And let's get this get this straight. Um, and that's why he says what he does toward the end of the chapter. Isaiah 10, 24 and 25 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. See, what they didn't understand was after God used them to accomplish his purpose, he was going to destroy them. They were destroying others, but it was going to get turned back on them. And that's true for all the nations that he uses. They're simply a tool in his hands. It's a great reminder of who's in charge. 
And it's a great reminder to the people to say, look, after this, after my fury subsides, everything, everything's going to be good. But there was some fury that needed to subside. The end of chapter 10, Isaiah 10, talks about how Assyria will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. In other words, there will be nothing left. They're, they're going to destroy. But then you get to chapter 11. And that's where we start today. Here's where the hope comes. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. Therefore, shall come, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kiss the wicked. Righteousness shall kiss? How about kill? Shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see this prophecy that the coming Messiah will come from the line of David. It says in verse 1, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was David's father. So it's saying it is going to come, and we see that over and over and over again. It's going to come from the lineage of King David, and Jesus certainly did. In fact, it's really interesting to see that if you trace the lineage of both Joseph and Mary, now, of course, he was uh, really... the didn't have a, an earthly father in the sense that the others do because Mary became pregnant by the, the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. But still, if you trace either one, Matthew goes through Joseph and traces it back to David. Luke goes through Mary and traces it back to David. But it's very clear that he has this lineage of David and uh, fulfills that aspect of the coming Messiah. And it, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is going to Rest on him. And from the very beginning, the Spirit of the Lord did rest on Jesus. But it wasn't so obvious. You know, there wasn't a lot of fanfare early on. In fact, the birth of Jesus was so simple. And the, the only fanfare was the, the angels appearing in heaven. But that was just to a few shepherds. It wasn't to masses of people like we would expect today. I mean, think about if Jesus were born today. I want you to think about Joseph and Mary. What would it be like? I mean, we're just talking a typical young couple that's having their firstborn child. What might it have been like, the conversation in the manger the night that Jesus was born? I can imagine Mary saying to Joseph, Joseph, prop his head up a little bit with a hay because I need to get a picture to put out on social media here. And I want everybody to see his face. And you see that donkey over there? Is there any way you could move the donkey over just a little bit? Because that would be a really cool prop right behind. Okay, there it is. Really good. And then Joseph's back with it. Well, do you have a good night mode on your camera? You know, is it going to pick him up? Because if we used a flash, it might scare him and we don't want to do that. You know, I, I can just imagine some of the conversation. None of that was happening. There was no fanfare. The only fanfare was the shepherds that came and they were told there was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That was it. Nothing fantastic about his appearance. But in spite of that, in spite of the simplicity of it all, the Spirit of the Lord was on him from the very beginning. Now it becomes a little bit more evident visibly later on. 
pretty cool thing happens at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there was this visible fulfillment and reminder of the Spirit of the Lord coming in the form of a dove. Now let's be really clear here. This is not the point at which the Spirit descended upon Jesus. Okay? From the very beginning, the Spirit was, was on Jesus and with Jesus because He's God. Uh, but this is when it became visible. And as a result of the, the Spirit of the Lord, it, it says it back in Isaiah 11 again, yeah, they all have a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. I mean, think about how all those things get played out in the life and ministry of Jesus. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He's going to judge not by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but with true righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. Now, all of that we can see in the life of Jesus. We don't yet see the second part of verse 4. Where it says, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. One day, um, I had just woken up, and I leaned over to give Sean a kiss, and she just looked at me and said, Isaiah eleven four. I said, what? I went back and I read, and it says, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. I was kind of offended by that, but then I just looked at her and I said, well, I guess that makes you the wicked then. I'm just, you know, none of that really happened. But this, <laughs> this is the expectation of the coming Messiah, right? That they, they were looking more than, you know, deciding with equity for the meek and all that. They were looking more for the let's kill the wicked, Let's get rid of our oppressors. Let's do away with them. And that will happen. Let me remind you again that when we see prophecy in the Old Testament, sometimes it is fulfilled in the first advent or the first coming of Jesus. Sometimes it will be the second coming, the second advent of Jesus. The, the first part of verse 4 we see fulfilled in the life of Jesus, but the killing with the breath of his lips, not so much yet, but it will we saw it in Revelation 19, Revelation 19:15. That's where Jesus comes back on the white horse and in victory and to wipe out all evil. And it says a sharp sword comes from his mouth that will strike down the nations. So it is going to happen from his lips and from his mouth. He will just breathe and just it'd be that easy. And he has completely destroyed all evil. But what else do we see of the Spirit of the Lord? being on Jesus. And it's interesting that there's another prophecy in Isaiah that I want you to turn to, Isaiah 61. And Aaron read a little bit of this a moment ago. I guess he read all these verses here a moment ago. But it also talks about the Spirit of the Lord being on him. Let, let me read it again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." 
This passage is exactly what Jesus quotes when he speaks in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, I know we're jumping around a lot. One more time. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, starting in verse 16, says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, And and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now just get this picture. Jesus is speaking in his hometown synagogue. They have heard about him. If you go back a few verses in chapter 4, it says word spread about him. There has to be so much tension in the room, so much expectation and anticipation that you can taste it. And Jesus chooses this passage from Isaiah 61. And then look at what he says in verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And can you just imagine that? Here's this hometown guy who is reading from the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah and says, today it's fulfilled in your hearing. The people were furious. In fact, it says, you read on the rest of the chapter, they took him to the edge of a cliff and they wanted to kill him. They were going to throw him off the edge of the cliff. They believed that he had uh, committed blasphemy. And by the way, one of my favorite verses that we can easily skip over is verse 30. So this angry mob takes him to the end of the, to the edge of this cliff, and all it says is, but passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> so like, nope, it's not going to happen. Time wasn't right. They weren't going to kill him then. He just walked right through them. But they're, they're really, really furious with him. I mean, this is bold on his part. Now, certainly it's true. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. But, I mean, this, think about this. This is how Jesus is starting. This is the very beginning, his first opportunity in his hometown. This is before he goes. We talked about uh, where he went to Zebulun and Naphtali. We talked about that last week. That comes right after this. This is before that even. And he says, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, knowing that it would stir up a hornet's nest. But he chose this passage anyway. Why? I mean, he doesn't tell us. That's his prerogative to choose what he wants. But, but I suspect that it has something to do with the content here. What he was saying was a good introduction and a synopsis of who he was and what his ministry was to be all about. Any of you familiar with the acronym when it comes to communication, the acronym BLUFF? B-L-U-F. If that rings a bell with anybody. Uh, If you want to communicate well, you need to learn to bluff. And it's not what you might think. Bluff stands for bottom line up front. Okay? Bottom line up front. And this comes, it's a military term actually. It's been applied in other areas. But it was started in the military where uh, information and memos and things were being sent to people in the field and they didn't have time to comb through pages and pages and pages of documents to figure out all they needed to know. And so they created this 
communication strategy of blah, bottom line up front. So there's this at the beginning of the document would be here's what you really need to know. If there are orders that need to be followed or whatever. And then you can read through, you know, another time to, to see all the details. Now, again, I would say it's not a message on communication. But I would say there's a lot to be learned from that of being able to communicate the bottom line up front, especially if you're sending emails. Uh, can I just make a public service announcement to those of you that send really, really, really long emails? Stop. Okay, just don't do that anymore. Bottom line, and if you're going to, bluff. Bottom line up front. Okay, those of us tend to be a little verbose. It's a nice way of saying it. Um, to, to, but seriously, to learn to communicate well, this is what you need to know. This is what needs to be said. And okay, let's give some more fluff if, if needed. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is, is giving the bottom line up front, saying this is who I am. I have come to fulfill this prophecy. So let's look at a couple of things that will give us some insight into why Jesus came and talk about how that applies to us in our lives today. And the first one is just simply that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. That's what he said. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see God's concern for the poor. We see it written into the laws uh, that they had. They were told not to gathered to the very edges of their property. They were told not to go back and over the gleanings that, that fell behind, and they were to leave those for the poor. And that's not the only place. There are plenty of other instructions, but God was obviously concerned with the poor. The application for us today, first of all, is exactly that, that we also should be concerned with the poor. How do we take care of those who need some extra help? But it goes broader than that because the poor were those that were overlooked and shunned. They, they weren't given the same value that other people were. And isn't that kind of true today? Somebody that doesn't have as much materially a lot of times is maybe not valued as much as somebody else that maybe is viewed as being able to contribute more in some way. And I just want to remind you today that if you feel overlooked in any way, it doesn't have to, I mean, it could be a, a financial thing of, of just truly being poor. It could be that, that you feel like you just don't fit in. Maybe you're not the race everyone says is the right one, or you don't dress the way everybody says you should dress, or you don't work in the right environment, or you don't get the grades at school that you should, or whatever else. You're not in those right social groups, and you feel overlooked. And devalued, I just want to tell you, Jesus came for you. He says that I've come to preach good news to the poor, to those that maybe aren't as valuable to everyone else. They are to me. And we see that throughout his life and throughout his ministry, uh, that, that he cares deeply about those that others don't really care about. And that ties into the second thing. And I've listed these out separately, although they kind of could go together. But right after that, it says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus also came to proclaim liberty to the captives. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now this uh, certainly happened literally in some cases. You think about Moses, you know, setting, uh, coming in and taking the people out of bondage in Egypt and God liberated them there. That's what people were looking for. That's what they expected from their Messiah. And so in this time that Jesus lived where the Romans are in charge and they're under oppression of the Romans, they were looking for someone that would set them free, that would deliver them, proclaim liberty for the captives. But that's not what Jesus meant. 
That's not specifically how he came to fulfill this prophecy. He absolutely came to give liberty to the captives, but in a different way. See, not one of us in this room and not one of us who's joining online is physically being held captive. But every single one of us is a captive, or at least we have been at some point in our lives. We have not necessarily been captive against our will as much as we have been captive because of our will, because of our desire. You see, all of us, we have a a will or a nature or a desire towards sin, toward rebellion against God. I mean, just like Adam and Eve, you know, given the opportunity where God said, don't eat this one fruit, and they did, and then it gets passed on, and we are all the same way. We rebel against God, and as a result of that, we are held captive. It goes on, and tied to that, it says um, also recovery of recovering of sight to the blind. Some of you may have noticed that I've been wearing some glasses lately. People ask me about that a little bit, and uh, that is a fairly recent thing. I used to wear them a long time ago. I had LASIK done, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, roughly. And it did great for a while, but I got to the point where I noticed things were starting to get just a little hazy. Not terrible, but not quite as sharp and clear as they used to be. And at at first I thought, you know, uh, I was told I need some glasses for distance. I don't wear them when I preach because it's harder to read. So I I typically don't do that when when I'm looking at stuff up close. But I'll wear them most other times now. Um, I started out by thinking, I'll just wear them when I drive at night. That was the worst part, right? It's harder to see at night when, you're, when your vision isn't as clear as it could be. So I'll just wear them to drive at night. So I did that, and then I started realizing, you know what? I can see a whole lot better when I put these things on. And so I started wearing them a little bit more, a little bit more. And now I pretty much wear them all the time. You know why? Because given the option, I would rather see than not. <laughs> That's not that I'm blind without them. But here's, here's what I learned. I didn't realize what I couldn't see until I could. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes until you're like, oh, you put the glass on, it's like, oh my goodness. I didn't know what I was missing until I put the glasses on and can actually see a little bit better that way. Spiritually speaking, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age, which is a reference to Satan, it says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. Sometimes we don't know what we can't see until we can. We're spiritually blind and don't realize it until we've been given sight. And then we're able to look back and we're like, oh my goodness, now I see it. Now it makes sense. I suspect that there are some of us in the room that are spiritually blind and don't realize it yet. Maybe it's like, eh, you know, my, my vision's maybe not as sharp as it could be. I'm a little fuzzy, but I'm doing okay. No, when it comes to spiritual eyes, either we can see or we can't. It's, it's not, I just need to see a little bit better. Um, it's one or the other. And so much of what has been ingrained in us is this belief that we can do for ourselves whatever we need to do, right? We can make it happen. And if we need um, sight then we will have sight. Doesn't work. This is not something that we can do for ourselves. You see, when it talks about captives, 
coming, it says, liberty to the captives. Captives can't set themselves free. In 2002, there was an American citizen by the name of Dilip Joseph, who was a medical director for Morning Star Development. And he was in Afghanistan trying to uh, help the people there with medical services, and he was taken captive by the Taliban. Uh, we hear a lot about Navy SEAL Team 6. Well, Team 6 was given the uh, mission to set him free. And their intelligence told them where he was being held captive. And so they, uh, they got there. They ended up hiking for four hours through the night, through the dark of the night, to get to this compound in the middle of the night because they, once they got there, they were going to surprise them and they were going to do it with a lot of force and really quickly. And they did. Uh, and when they arrived... Uh, there was a petty officer by the name of Nicholas Check, who was one of the first ones to, to enter, and he was unfortunately shot in the head and killed. There were other SEALs that, that came in after that. One of them, um, his name was Senior Chief Special Warfare Operator Edward C. Byers. Byers, uh, because of his bravery in that particular mission, was the first sailor, living sailor, to receive the Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. I mean, his, his acts of heroism were just a, a, amazing. He went in, he, he uh, tackled somebody that was there, and, and uh, it, it describes what he did. It said with one hand he pins him to the ground, and with the other hand he's adjusting his night vision to make sure that this isn't the hostage that he's there to rescue, that it's a bad guy. It was. He took care of that. Found the hostage, gets on top of him to protect him, sees movement off to his side as somebody reaching for their weapon. He's able to take the guy and shove him up with one hand against the wall, holds him by his throat against the wall until he can get help. And they came over and took care of him. They ended up getting this hostage, Mr. Joseph. They got him safely out. They completed the rescue mission. But check would not have had to give his life and buyers would not and the others would not have had to risk their lives if Mr. Joseph could have freed himself. See, the only hope that a captive has is to be set free. And when Jesus, it says, came to set captives free, see, the first thing we have to do is to admit, I'm blind and I'm a captive. And that's not as simple as you might think. Because so, much, so many of us just think, you know, I'm okay. Maybe I'm not perfect and I recognize that, but I'm a pretty good person, whatever that means. And, you know, we, we have all these ideas in our minds. We have to acknowledge that we're captive and that we need to be liberated. Back to Isaiah 61. It talks about the end of chapter, uh, verse 1 says the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's the setting of the captives free. And then verse 2 says this. It says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Those two are listed together. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. When I read that it made me think of this truth. When SEAL Team 6 comes, if you are the one being held captive, you're in a good place when they arrive. If you're the enemy, that's not such a good place to be. It's not going to turn out well for you. 
See, it, it depends on whose side you're on. When Jesus came to set captives free, that's for those who trust him, for those who, who say, I'm, I'm, I want to be yours, I'm giving my life to you, and it is going to be a day of wonderful celebration for them, a day of God's blessing, right? But it's also a day of vengeance for those who don't. You see, the, the bottom line is this, guys. When it comes to where we stand spiritually, listen to the way Jesus said it in Matthew 12, 30. He said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Either you belong to him or you don't. You know, you're, you're, you're on one side or the other. There's no neutral ground here. And my question for you today is, have you come to a point of acknowledging I'm spiritually blind, I'm held captive by sin, and my only hope is Jesus, and I want to ask Jesus to set me free? I'm pretty confident for some, maybe the answer is no, that you haven't yet come there. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe you know that that's a step you need to take, but I want to give you the opportunity right now to take a step of faith to say, yes, Jesus, I want to be set free. I want to give my heart and my life to you today. See, all the work has been done. Jesus died on the cross. He did everything for us. He rose from the dead. He paid for our sin. But we have to respond in faith. We have to say, yes, I want you to rescue me, and I want you to set me free. If you're ready to do that today, I just want to lead you through a prayer. You can do that right here. You can do that if you're joining with us online. But I want you to pray a prayer of faith to say, Jesus, I give my heart and my life to you. So let's bow our heads and for a moment of prayer. And I just want you to know, for those that haven't yet taken this step, I've been praying earnestly, and others have been praying earnestly all week, that this would be your time that you would say yes to Jesus. I know sometimes we're not sure how to do that, so I want to give you just a model to follow. I'm going to pray a prayer, and after each phrase, I'll stop, I'll pause, and I'll let you repeat that same phrase in your own heart back to God. If you're ready to trust in Christ, pray something like this. God, I confess to you that I'm captive to sin and I need to be rescued. Jesus, I believe that you are God who came to earth as a human being. I believe you lived a sinless life and died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you rose on the third day in victory over sin and death. Right here and right now, I place my trust in you. I surrender to you as Lord of my life from this day forward. Thank you for setting me free. Amen.